Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and welcome to the IRR show. Post the serious matter of reflecting and fasting and now we're probably heading down to Sukkot by which time it should start raining um, as they have always said in South Africa um, the farmers have always said rather so we've done the bit so now we have to get the rain and crikey we really really do need it things are just so dry and so dusty I think we're all going to shrivel up um, as you can hear, uh, Big Daddy Liberty is out of town, so it's it's me and later joined by a guest, a colleague from the IRR, and we'll be having a little bit of a debate about Heritage Day, and I'll come at it from a slightly cynical standpoint, as is my wont, and we'll look, we'll segue on to a related topic, and that is cultural appropriation. In the meantime, I will let's have a look at what's been hitting the news. Um, the first thing is very, and very briefly is that uh, the president, Sir Ramaphosa, has docked our defense minister's salary for three months, which will be, go into the Solidarity Fund for flying to Zimbabwe with her colleagues, allowing them onto a defense force plane and breaching the lockdown rules. I'm not sure that docking the pay, it's a bit, it's naff and it's not serious enough. Uh, serious enough would probably be firing her from her position and, and she has certainly been in that position for, for long enough. So docking your pay is a bit of a slap on the wrist, um, is my feeling. Then we go on to the never ending saga of South African Airways and allied to this is, uh, uh SA Express, which is in, uh, provisional liquidation. Now, basically, the liquidators have approved a bid by Fly SAX to save the airline. It's 26 years old. And it mostly serves the, the bigger towns, the smaller cities, etc. Now, the company was founded and managed by SA Express employees about a month ago, August 2020. And they will have to raise at least 250 million rand to buy the airline and then provide further capital to restart it. Um, the process did attract at least 17 private sector investors who wanted to either purchase SA, SA Express's entire operations or its aviation assets. Now, I'm a little bit dubious about uh, what, about what SA what do they call them, Fly SAX um, offers, because they have tied up with an organization called Uprise.Africa, which is a crowdfunding private equity platform. Now, I may, I may be unnecessarily cynical at this stage, but uh, a crowdfunding platform for, for purchasing an airline um, – I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not in, entirely sure. So it looks like, it looks like a bit of a sop, shall we say, to, uh, to existing vested interests. Um, but we'll see. Maybe, uh, maybe anything can change. There are, can, there are serious conditions attached to the sale. 
And as we know, the uh, SAA has been granted, or it's been agreed that Cabinet will provide 10.5 billion rand to bail it out of trouble. Um, and just to say that the the support, the, that money is going to come by take, being taken from other areas. Um, one is a, from a plan proposed to create one million job opportunities, and the other is PRASA, the rail agency, which is in deep trouble, and that really serves the poor as opposed to airlines, which essentially serve the rich. So our government gets weirder and weirder every day. And uh, I think in contemplation of that, let's take the first ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I'd just like to go back uh, to the SAA story and the idea that in order to receive 10.5 billion rand in funding to just get it to the starting blocks, money has to be taken from elsewhere. And the fact that money will probably be taken from an allocation that's been made but not spent by PRASA. This is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, PRASA has been... The only thing one associates with PRASA in, in the last 26 years is disappearing management and increasing corruption. It has been so badly mismanaged, and it's the provision of train services is crucial to much of the uh, suburbs and townships around South Africa. It is, it's beyond bad. There is an article, there is a piece, not an article, because it's, it's going to become a longer um, issue, but there's a photograph of a train station in Gauteng that has been just vandalized. I mean, everything that is useful, um, bricks, mortar, uh, 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 wire, etc., has been removed, has just been taken. Now, this obviously happened during COVID when train services were, were not running. But you have to, have to ask, dear God, why was the, this stuff not being protected is, uh, do we have to assume that either they they just aren't the people to do it, or it didn't even occur to management that this might be a problem? Um, it's it's beyond a disgrace, and it goes to the certainly with the emphasis on SA, it goes to the sense that the government really doesn't care about ordinary South Africans. It doesn't care. Its main concern is that we have an airline with livery that seem to come out of, in and out of the country to promote it and apparently enhance and assist tourism, which uh, by all accounts uh, can easily be done by other airlines. So, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what, to, I don't know what to say about that. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to add a few things about the, uh, assassination of Lef, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kinier in the Cape. Now he's a, he was a, a, a really a top cop, dedicated to his field, and essentially he was going to bust uh, an operation of corrupt cops at the highest level. I think there were about eight cops involved. Um, and then he was shot to death in an assassination, and somebody has been arrested, an uh, uh, ex-rugby player has been arrested, a death collector for the mobs, I think he's called. Um, and it was probably above all his, the fact that he was he was going to implicate top cops that ultimately got him killed, but that's just a supposition on 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 my part. The um, what it what what it largely stems from is the um, 
uh, is the firearms registry in Gauteng. Now, the person in charge of that, a uh, Lieutenant Colonel Prinsler, has been convicted and imprisoned for that, uh, for, for the corruption he indulged in, in getting firearms, sending firearms from the uh, registry. These are, these are firearms that were due to be destroyed um, to uh, gangs, gang bosses, who would then sell them on to, into the Cape Flats. And a horrendous number of people have been proven to have been killed by, by these guns. Um, but apparently, um, according to uh, Jenny Arisha Koboshiani, who's investigating the, uh, the registry, she says that the gun licensing system is partly on paper and partly on an electronic system, which runs very badly. Management there is dysfunctional, dysfunctional, and there is corruption both at the registry and among designated firearms officers at police stations. So it's an absolute ghastly quagmire that is literally the state is empowering the areas most devastated by the highest levels of crime, including murder, which is, which is the Cape, Cape Flats. And anyone who's trying to obtain a license legally so that they are in possession of a legal firearm will tell you that to go to the registry and apply for the registration of a firearm is an extraordinarily difficult process and takes an enormously long time to get that, uh, to get your firearm registered. So, but obviously if you, if you're a, if you're a criminal and you run a, you run a gang or a criminal enterprise and you want a gun, you got the money, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to do. Now apparently Kinnear reported this potential breakthrough to the highest level of the police in this country at the end of 2018. Nothing ostensibly appears to have happened. Um, and now, and now he's dead. So read into that, uh, read into that what you want. Um, but it's, it's a terrible sense of a of a of an entity that is already the least trusted in uh, the least trusted service that the government provides, and very very corrupt cops at the top is usually a very bad sign for anyone investigating them. But apparently, uh, Kinnear's colleagues are taking the matter further, and they will, and hopefully, if anyone deserves to be. Uh, to be caught, charged, and jailed for life. It's, it's top cops. I mean, if it comes from the top, what do you expect is going to happen at the bottom? And now for a, a possibly an amusing uh, um, story. The University of Cape Town Ombud, Zetu Makamandela Nkikilwa, excuse me if I'm pronouncing wrong, has been suspended because she published a report in which she said that 663 people had complained about issues Related to the UC, the conduct of the Vice Chancellor, uh, Pakeng. So you now have this sort of showdown between, um, uh, Pakeng and the Ombud. And she has been put under pressure by the chairman or the chairperson of the, um, of the, of this council, the senior body, the biggest, the big body, uh, managing the, uh, the, the organization to change her report, which she has refused to do. And it involves alleged the allegations of racism on the part of of Pakeng, and it, it's it's really a matzah pudding. But it's almost a kind of um, things coming back to bite you as 
everyone involved, almost everyone involved at the senior levels um, is black. So basically, white racism is not an issue in this case. But I'm sure this will develop further. It will be like another episode of, uh, I don't know, Days of Our Lives or, or something similar. So having uh, said all that, on to the next ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Good morning and welcome back to the IRR show. As promised, um, I bring, uh, brought on board my colleague uh, Nicholas Lorimer um, from the IRR and Nicholas uh, hosts our podcast and is a boff on both the, on American politics and uh, history in general. But today we're going, I'm going to challenge him on the history of South Africa in uh, taking him through and around Heritage Day. Nick, hi. Good morning, Zara. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty well, pretty well, uh, as well as one can be early in the week. Yes, uh, we've already had a, week's full of po- uh, a week full of politics um, and it's only Tuesday. Right, Nick, um, I'll tell you what I, want to, what I want to raise and I said I would be cynical about it because I generally am. And that is, I'm not a fan of Heritage Day. And the, and I'm not a fan of Heritage Day for this reason. 24 September was, prior to democracy, was known as Shaka Day. And it was a commemoration of Shaka, the Zulu king, by, by Zulus in Natal, in in largely. Um, they, they considered him as having played an important role in, united, in uniting a disparate Zulu uh, uh, Zulu clans into a cohesive nature and they used to gather together to honour him but it wasn't a public holiday now when the ANC published the, its first list of public holidays in about 1994 I think it was or 95 or maybe even 96 there was no reference at all to um, Memorial Shaka Memorial Day at all and the uh, the IFP, the Inkata Freedom Party, objected to the bill. And what they did is they reached a compromise and they came up with Heritage Day, which would be a public holiday. So now we have um, a day, quote, when South Africans celebrate the diverse cultural heritage that makes up the Rainbow Nation, close quote. It is the day to celebrate the contribution of all South Africans to the building of South Africa. Now, my, my beef is not with people wanting to celebrate our heritage. I mean, the Jewish community has recently been been commemorating its heritage in the most intense and serious way. But creating a public holiday, it's it's a sop. And it's a sop to something that doesn't exist, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, in that to the extent that we have a heritage, on other days of the year, um, the heritage is largely contested. And some groupings will even say that we don't have a sh- the, the heritage that some have should not be available to be the heritage of others. Um, so I don't like the day. Um, am I wrong? Am I being way too cynical about it? Um, look, I think I think there is something to be said for Heritage Day. So uh, you know, it is based on sort of nothing but outside of religious uh, holidays. Most public holidays are kind of based on they're based on an event or whatever the sort of politics has decided to emphasise. Um, I actually kind of like the fact that it has its origins in a compromise that exists outside of sort of the dominant political parties. Uh, 
uh, framework in history, right? Because it mm-hmm. was soft to the IFP. So I, I, I quite like that about it. Um, I do agree with you that it has been sort of used and abused a lot. Um, you know, heritage is often used as a sort of weapon or political tool to bash people, to divide people, to unite people against other people, um, which isn't which isn't so great. But I think that there are opportunities where one can uh, can use Heritage Day quite nicely. It is it is an important part of our sort of founding myth of South Africa, right? That we are this. Uh, nation of many different places has been brought together and sort of fused together in an interesting and sometimes difficult way, but uh, a way that ultimately we, we sort of see ourselves, I think it's, it's important, let's, let me put it this way, for the idea of the Rainbow Nation, um, mm-hmm. which is one of, which is an important thing to remember because the Rainbow Nation is really the only way I think South Africa can work. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you, and, uh, and I'm interested that you agree that to some extent it is a SOP. Um, what I, other than the fact that I, th- I think we, one can have a heritage day without necessarily having a date um, to have a public holiday, which costs um, the, the economy a huge amount of money, um, I recall when my kids were at high school, I think it was, and sometime during the week, obviously while school was on, they would have sort of little celebrations with. Um, reflecting the heritage, it could be dress, it could be food, um, it could be dance, it could be whatever. And that had a certain appeal to me because the idea was to display that where we come from is different, but that it's, it can be inclusive, that each one has, each of us has something to offer someone else. Um, and I think where it really got undone was that the fact that it became a, an area for, for, for the woke and the politically unhappy to indicate that, well, you know, particularly whites, you know, their heritage was purely colonialism and apartheid and uh, they had nothing to offer. And in fact, they shouldn't, they, they shouldn't take part because everything is, ne- everything about it is negative. And I think that's where it lost the way. I think it, 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 it also in a way has taken, it should be much more fun and, and, and less fraught. Right, I, 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 I agree with you there, and that is the use and abuse of it I was talking about earlier. Um, but I do think that there is a way to celebrate Heritage Day correctly, and, and it is, a, in contrast to a lot of our other non-religious holidays, a very um, uh, a much happier occasion. I mean, if you think about uh, June 16th or March 21st, those are days commemorating massacres and sort of terrible human rights abuses in our country. Um, so I think that there is... Uh, a space for, for us to, to have a day where we actually just celebrate something. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the abuse of it is just going to undermine the whole idea because if only some people are actually allowed to participate in Heritage Day and if we don't accept all heritages, then what's the exactly. point of having it? Then it's counterproductive. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly the problem is the not accepting the heritage. In other words, heritage is determined by one group only and um, other groups are deemed to have a negative heritage even though like 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 every group in this country, the the, the, the whites are not a um, are not a homogenous grouping. Everyone comes from a lot of places and has a, have a lot of different histories. And I think that's one of the problems in this country as a whole is the fact that it is not only people who've who've suffered from the ill effects of, of apartheid. It's who have a lived experience. A lot of people have what we call let's say a lived experience, which by that they usually mean a very fraught and possibly negative experience, 
but we don't we're not given the space to talk about it and that ideally is what a heritage day should be about the the possibility of exploring each other's backgrounds and better understanding our respective histories right and i think there's also something to be done uh, of, of exchange so uh, you know you mentioned work workeasters being obsessed about this sort of thing and that's true there is there is a tendency of uh, to criticize people for cultural appropriation um, but I, I think that there is no more damaging concept to the idea of, of culture because at the end of the day, they're almost, you know, if you actually want to go and look into the history of basically any cultural practice, there's almost always some kind of outside influence. doesn't matter what mm. culture you're talking about. Um, and so the idea that you can just sort of hermetically seal off cultures in little bubbles and then protect them from all others is, is actually ridiculous and stifling because mm. real cultural growth almost always comes from uh, people exchanging ideas and adopting customs from other places. I mean, think about uh, half South Africa. Uh, my uh, my colleague Gabriel Krauser described it as uh, a great big session yebo, right? It's like a big <laughs> yeah. pot full of full of all sorts of different foods and flavors that have come together. And of course, uh, session yebo has a lot of influence from uh, other other culinary cultures, like in mm. India, for example. Mm. Um, quite sharp. Exactly. And if you think of uh, a country like the UK, right? What, what is one of the most popular foods there? It's something like curry, and it's an important part of modern British culture. Mm. Whereas in, in and in India, by contrast, they've adopted the British sport of cricket, mm. um, and and so this is and that's an important part of cultural identity of Indians today. So this sort of cultural exchange is, I think, actually far more enriching. Um, and if we're all forced to just sort of live in little bubbles rather than uh, exchanging, it's quite stifling. Is uh, I- wouldn't you agree that uh, cultural appropriation or the attacks against so-called cultural appropriation, whether it be a hairstyle or an outfit or a plate of food or whatever it might be, is a particularly ugly, mean-spirited aspect of, of, of woke culture, um, of political correctness? Because it's basically saying it, – it, it's also selective and, and, and ignorant because it's essentially saying you may not copy or – take on anything I do, even even though, and this is not said, my entire existence ref- and the clothes I wear, the food I eat, the way I talk, etc., may be essentially an appropriation from the culture, the, the, the dominant culture I'm living in. And there's something, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a kind of inferiority complex that says, you know, this is what I've got and it may, it's probably, I don't think it's enough so you can't have it. <laughs> right. I think I think like the idea behind cultural appropriation is to stop people basically being mean spirited and rude about other people's cultures, and that's 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 fine enough. But it's always taken too far. There's a sort of racialist essentialism built into the whole idea, right? So basically, a lot of cultural appropriation rests on the idea that there's sort of an inherent culture in your blood that mm. only people of that blood can. Uh, express, and I think that that's a very dangerous road to go down because that essentially says that, oh, you know, uh, regardless of where you come from, what you think, how you were raised, uh, you have this kind of essential culture in your blood that you have to stay loyal to, and that is the beginning of racism. That is the central pillar of racism is that blood determines everything else. And isn't, isn't the problem that the uh, the current focus or the focus for for much of the last 26 years has been on on inter, on black and white relations but every 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 sort of group that has an identity whether it be tribal or uh, religious etc 
they are an entity unto themselves and have very distinct cultures and attitudes of their own. And, and that is what really we should be looking to bringing out in Heritage Day, not least of which is some really good food. Yeah, no, I, I think so. There's a lot of stuff that you can bring out in Heritage Day. But I think also Heritage Day should be kind of a, a day for creativity, uh, one where you can kind of go a little bit nuts with sort of um, uh, coming up with new ways to express your personal heritage, whatever that may be, um, and and admiring and respecting and incorporating the heritages of others, mm. um, because I think that's really what it's all about. Mm. Now, I, th- I think w- when we start to relax more, as as, as probably we we did earlier on in the, in in the ANC in ANC rule, and become less fixated on identity for uh, nefarious reasons, we'll reach that stage. Now, much as it's received some some uh, criticism. I actually really like um, the fact that Heritage Day's sort of sub subtitle is uh, Bride Day, because if there's one thing that wherever wherever it originated, it has gone across the country in one form or the other. Um, it's bride. I mean, people, South Africans, black, white, English, Afrikaans, Zulu, Sutu, on a day when they have guests over and they relax, they bride. Their brides may consist of different uh, types of food, but that I actually think it's it, and it's also light-hearted. And people have have sort of um, taken it uh, to task for being light-hearted and not taking heritage seriously enough. But seriously speaking, it is a genuinely mixed heritage. Right, and it it once again shifts the focus back to having a day of fun, which is exactly the right idea, I think. Um, and and it is it is it is something shared amongst all of us, and it is something kind of iconically South African. Uh, so it is something that we should um, encourage, I think, rather than rather than come down on. We have enough days to be very grim um, mm. in South Africa. That's uh, 363. <laughs> right. Never never mind what's going on uh, uh, over the year with our sort of politics, our economy, all that. Um, a lot of our other public holidays are very serious, very grim, mm-hmm. uh, like reminders of very dark periods in our history. And so I think it's really good to have a day where we can just sort of have fun, kick back, and think of all the good things that make this place interesting to live in. Uh, it just occurred to me that maybe, I mean, you, we, the IRR usually does some very hard-hitting campaigns, and all our, most of the articles are, 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 are serious to the point of uh, probably of depression. Um, but it just struck me that maybe we should embark upon a campaign to you know, bring the nation together on a, on, a, on, a, on a heritage day that is more fun, that does celebrate heritage, and that isn't serious. That would be a, a change for, for the IRR. Do you think, do you think it would, uh, we'd succeed, or do we do best at the bad news? <laughs> I think it would be good for us to do it. Um, I, I, you know, I, think, I think it is something people do want to hear because uh, I think... A lot of South Africans are tired of just grimness all the time, um, you know, because it is it is present in a lot of places right now, and I think it would be uh, a welcome change for many people. <laughs> welcome change, yes, no, that's, that's, that it would be fun. Um, one thing, sorry, it just occurred to me that the idea of cultural appropriation has had its moment here, but I, I get the impression that this the intensity of it is is probably less less intense ironically here than in countries like uh, the UK and, and and the USA where the the woke the woke the wokeistas uh, the black lives matter movement there's an intensity and unpleasantness there 
that I mean people have have lost jobs in universities and and been shunned for so-called cultural appropriation, which generally, you know, even if you're a bit offended by it, it's 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 generally it's not a serious thing. It's it's it's. it's I think the one involved at a, at a at a university in the states involved the wearing of Mexican hats to a party, and this was deemed offensive. I don't know by whom to the Mexicans. Is it perhaps that because we are so culturally diverse that we actually will largely overcome this aggressive cultural appropriation need? I think so, and I think uh, you know it's also because the sort of um, uh, a lot of these kind of politically correct niceties actually haven't penetrated that far into a lot of South Africans' lives. So really a lot of South Africans are actually kind of quite delighted when they see someone of a different background taking an interest in their, their heritage. I mean, not, not everyone, obviously, there are mm. exceptions, but uh, a lot of people, I think, you know, when, so, so for example, Johnny Clegg was derided by many people uh, as being sort of like a cultural appropriator and, you know, because he dressed up as a Zulu and did Zulu dancing and stuff. But there were also a lot of people, I think, who were uh, delighted that he, mm. Im- that he was embracing their culture, taking it to the world stage and uh, doing interesting things with it. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think there's a sort of, uh, there's a, there's a natural uh, joy that a lot of South Africans have in seeing other people kind of participating mm. in, in things that they see as theirs. Um, and it makes them feel proud of their own culture because it's drawing in other people to, who want to mm. participate in it. Uh, obviously, one, one can be callous when one does these things, um, but as long as you avoid that, I think it's pretty pretty easy to do. And it's, it's easy usually to know where that line is. Mm. No, fair enough. Uh, can, I, can I ask you to stay on for after the ad break? I just want to bounce a few, few more things off, off you. And if you're happy to do that, we'll move on to the ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, the RR show. Um, we, we've been talking. I've been talking with Nicholas Lorimer, my colleague, about uh, Heritage Day and cultural appropriation. And Nick, I wanted to raise two very positive, let's um, cultural appropriation uh, um, scenarios. But it, it's the other way around, and this is what I suppose you would call cultural appropriation um, by, by, by certain black people. The, f- the first is, for example, Pretty Yende. Now, she's an opera singer. Uh, she's a soprano. And she is literally absolutely world, world-class. And she lives, I think, in Austria or Germany now. She's performed at La Scala and the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, as, as wonderful a career as anyone could possibly wish for. And as the, the, the response she's always got when she's been home, both from the community she comes from and um, and from white audiences, has been tremendous. And I think at the end of the day, most people really just appreciate the fact that somebody who has talent can realise that talent without being put into a straitjacket of of a cultural upbringing or a, a cultural outlook. Right. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a strange question if you think about it, right? It shows uh, how much uh, some some of our ideas are kind of uh, characterized by stereotypes. Is that we're mm. we're surprised that that the, that you know by the career of a black opera singer. But of course, why shouldn't there be fantastic black opera exactly. singers out there? Uh, 
And it shouldn't be uh, shamed, shamed either. There are uh, people out there who will say things like, and I, I think I saw an article about this recently, uh, why are you participating in, in white culture glorifying dead white men's work or something like that? Mm. Um, and that's very toxic as well because, you know, this is, this, this is a good example of someone who's brought something to, uh, a, 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 an art, uh, of themselves and they are succeeding greatly because of their talent, skill and determination. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of beautiful. Mm. Well, I agree with you uh, completely. It's also about the fact that people find their niche where they find their niche, and it shouldn't matter where it is that they find their niche. The other group that um, I want to shout out for a bit is Buscade. Um, Rosemary Nalden, about uh, roughly 20 years ago, started Buscade in Diplerf, um, um and the idea was to get very poor kids off the streets to learn to play string instruments and they have the Buscade String Ensemble which is essentially the, the senior players who, are, who, who, who reach professional standard and it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to see a program of their work because, because of their string ensemble they play large of the classical repertoire they play largely baroque music but they've played film scores and then they play, they usually end with quellas which are devised and arranged by, by the players themselves. Um, and it's, it is, you know, there's nothing to be cynical about that. It is superb to be able to watch people transition literally by virtue of learning a, let's say, a classically white European instrument to being able to play that music and then to move on to to a, a, a sort of a, time, a township style of music, and it works, and it it just flows because it works, and that is per, probably more rewarding than anything else. And you, when you're taking poor kids off the street, you don't want to, you know, they shouldn't be faced with the target of you're poor and you're black, and you shouldn't be learning that that uh, instrument, which provides a focus and. It provides discipline and all the things that kids desperately, desperately need. Right. Um, and I think the only people who would be opposed to such a thing would be those who are obsessed with race essentialism, as I mentioned earlier, those who think that uh, because you look a certain way, because you come from a certain heritage, you have to behave a certain way, you have to embrace certain things. Um, and, uh, you know, people can find expression in however they like. Um, and, 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 uh, this is another good example of that. Mm. Um, okay, well, so maybe we need to, part of our, our drive outwards is to uh, is, is to encourage those things. Okay. You don't often see blowback on uh, on black artists uh, choosing a let's call it a white art form. It's usually criticism, and it's obviously intended to engender the racial uh, the racial aspect. It's usually, as you say, with someone like. Um, Johnny Clegg, it's, it's the white art, uh, artist taking on the black art form. And again, the, the terrible thing about that is that you, you, you must, people must do what they are best at doing and what they can interpret best, and it doesn't matter what that may be. And I think there's a, there's a lot to be learned from that. Nick, um, I think we've sort of canvassed the subject. I actually want to throw something completely different to you, just because it just occurred to me, it's a political issue, nothing to do with cultural appropriation, it's more to do with appropriating uh, South African taxpayers' money um, 
Former President Zuma has accused uh, Judge uh, Zondo of being biased and therefore to have him recused from when he appears at the commission. Um, surely this is only intended to kick the matter further into touch. It is cannot seriously be intended to actually up, to upturn the commission in its operations. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, um, of course, we've, we've seen this from Zuma for the entire time that he's been charged with something, right? Since, since the very beginning, the, the so-called Stalingrad legal defense, where every single possible opportunity, uh, for, for a legal objection, you make it. Uh, every time there's an appeal, you wait until the last day before you launch your appeal. Uh, mm. every single time there's any reason that you could possibly bring up, even if it's going to get thrown out, you bring it up so that it gets, uh, thrown out again. And, um, a lot of people sort of scoff. They say, oh, this is ridiculous. There's no way this could work. And yet, and yet, uh, <laughs> we are, we are many years after his first, uh, first time he was accused of, 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 uh, or he faced any kind of charge or criminal charge or day in court and mm. all that. And, uh, he's still not really faced a proper day in court despite mm. his insistence that he wants to. So, uh, don't knock the Stalingrad legal strategy until you've tried it. I think <laughs> Zuma showed how effective it can be. And clearly, uh, either somebody is uh, funding this or he has uh, lots of our cash stacked somewhere that, uh, that, that, that he can use. But I think what, what part of this Stalingrad technique now is doing is there's something fundamentally um, revolting about, if I can put it that way. And I say, I mean, because he essentially, he led the march on really, over, on really embedding safe capture. And, I mean, the, the, the destruction is wrought on the society is huge. But I mean, just with reference back to my discussion on the death of, of, of the policeman, uh, Charles Kinnear, um, it was essentially his determination to hollow out the police, the NPA, and, and the judiciary, and any any entity that could possibly uh, jail him in the long run, that has led to that sort of corruption at high levels that allows large amounts of guns and ammunition to end up in in, in townships. Gauteng, KZN, it's gone to t- the, the taxi industry assassins, and obviously in the Cape Flat. And it's really that sense of real revulsion that he's managed to compartmentalize the, the, the destruction that he has, that he has wrought. Right. In a way uh, that, that doesn't, you know, there's no shame, there's no apology, there's nothing. There's just Stalingrad. No, of course. Um, and, uh, I think that's why he has been actually such a successful fighter is that he's able to, to use any sort of political tool to hand to, to do whatever he wants. Um, there's, a, I think something that's often underappreciated is how just the mere fact of the sort of Stalingrad legal defense, um, I think that it's one of the reasons it grates so much is it kind of abuses our, uh, democratic system. Our, our liberal, our liberal justice system, right, gives people the benefit of the doubt. It assumes innocent before, uh, before proven guilty and all these sort of things to protect people from being falsely accused of things. And, uh, Zuma's sort of legal defense is a very good example of why uh, when liberal justice systems were becoming the norm around the world, some people were opposed to them, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, they saw the, the those who were very possibly guilty as just abusing those protections. 
Um, and I think that's why it's so corrosive is because those protections are important to us. Um, this, the, the, the idea that the police are on our side is extremely important to the fabric of society. Mm-hmm. And when they're hollowed out in this way because, uh, you know, everything is being dragged through the courts for a thousand years or because the cops are being turned, uh, you know, against the people they're supposed mm-hmm. to protect, that, that does a profound, not just uh, sort of political and safety damage to people's lives, uh, damage to the lives of people's safety. But also damage to to um, the society and the fabric and our cohesion. That that that, that puts puts it absolutely perfectly. Nick, thank you very very much for being on the show, and uh, it's been great having you. And we'll bring you back for probably probably a more obtuse issue at a later stage. And we now go to an ad break. Hi FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Welcome back, and uh, in the final few minutes of the show, we'll just look at some of the issues that will uh, come up this week. The Zondo Commission is obviously going to be big, because A, because of Zuma, and B, because it's got less than six months before it finally ends, and uh, we see whether something really worthwhile has come out of it. Um, the Airways cons- carries on uh, taking our time up, but now I think it has another element in the sense that of the link of the denuding of Prasa, of its money, its management, its reputation, and everything that it has that amounts to a building or a, or, or a railway track. So that, that's going to be uh, looked at as well. And uh, more than that, I think what we're really going to keep watching, certainly for a while, is to see whether um, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kinnear's death does result in top cops involved in the trafficking of guns to criminal gangs and syndicates actually comes out into the open and results in something because that it would only be the start but it would certainly be a sense that finally something is being uncovered and it's and the corruption and those who are corrupt are just finally unraveling I'm sure there will be much more than that but uh for the time being, that's enough to keep an eye on things for the next while. So thank you very much for joining us on this uh, belated Heritage Day edition. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.